Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I'm extremely excited to be sitting down with Scott Wingo, the co-founder and CEO of Get Spiffy and the co-founder and former CEO of Channel Advisor. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on. It's been a long time coming. Uh, been looking forward to this conversation, though. Why don't we just jump right into it? Can we go through your career journey leading up to today? Sure. The uh, Thanks for having me. Excited to do this and I'm glad we could find time to do it. Uh, yeah, wonderful. So I'm a serial entrepreneur here in the Research Triangle Park area of North Carolina. And the, the Reader's Digest version, the thumbnail of my background is I've started four companies. So I'm on company number four. Um, I have an engineering background, so uh, uh, computer engineering. So I studied software in school. Uh, South Carolina undergrad, NC State grad school. Went to work for a startup out of school. Didn't love that. It was up in Connecticut. Moved back yeah. to this triangle area and have started four companies. Company number one was called Stingray Software. That was developer tools for Visual C++. Started that in 95 and then in 98 sold it to a public company that was bigger than us. Um, stayed on for a year. And then after that year, uh, in startup land, we call it, we'd call it indentured servitude uh, to our acquirer. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I was really, uh, as you know, I'm a Star Wars fan and I yeah. had a lot of extra uh, capital because of selling my company and um, and then e-commerce was being born. So I started using auction sites a lot to buy collectibles mm. and discovered that was there, there was a lot to be desired there. So built a search engine for auction sites called Auction River. Mm. Um, <clears throat> as part of that, we, we sold that company to a public company called GoTo.com. And then they changed their name to Overture. So most people would remember them as Overture at this point. They invented paid search. Sadly, Google made all the money, but these guys invented the uh, right. first V1 of paid search. Um, and then what started happening is after we sold the company, you didn't really need an auction search engine because the only one to survive the dot-com implosion was eBay. Right. So then we started building selling tools. We, we had already had some seller tools, so we focused in on that. And then... Um, what happened is that became very popular with large businesses. So um, Overture got to the point where they were competing with Google. They wanted to shut us down to focus on that competition. And we ended up spinning out that idea of helping large businesses sell on, at the time, auction sites, now what we would call third-party marketplaces, and right. called it Channel Advisor in 2001. Um, and it's actually a good day to be recording this because uh, I'll, I'll explain why in a second. Uh, it's a it's a milestone day for me. And so uh, so started Channel Advisor 2001. And what Channel Advisor the idea was we would help brands and retailers sell their products uh, on marketplaces. At the time there was one, right. but then we got really lucky because this little bookstore in Seattle started a marketplace. They were called Amazon. Right. <laughs> Most people didn't think they'd be successful with it because it was their fourth try, but they were wildly successful. They built a trillion dollar company and we got to ride along on that wave um, in their wake. Um, so it went public in 2013. That's been one of my my journeys as an my goals as an entrepreneur is to take a company public. So I got to do that. Uh, and then um, started uh, my fourth company in 2014. I was kind of uh, 
both at Channel Advisor as CEO and started Spiffy. Um, and then um, moved to full-time at Spiffy in 2015 and still on the board of Channel Advisor. And a Channel Advisor just got acquired and that deal closed today. So it's now wow. part of a private equity-backed company called Commerce Hub. So I'm ending a 21-year journey today. So that's, uh, so that's uh, we get to uh, memorialize that on the podcast here. Wow, very cool. <laughs> Yeah. And then company number four, the origins of that started in 2003. I bought a car wash as a diversification thing, a physical car wash with a tunnel and all that kind of jazz, and then built one in 05. Um, so I've been in the quote unquote car wash biz for for quite a while. Um, and then right around the time of the Channel Advisor IPO, I had my first Uber experience. Mm. And as an e-commerce person, the, the dots I connected very quickly... Um, that makes sense to me. People still uh, scratch their heads on this one, but but here's what I'm thinking. Um, we've seen product go digital in the form of e-commerce. Once I had that first Uber experience, I was like, services are going to go digital, and meaning they'll be app based. You'll pay for them digitally. You'll you as the consumer of the service will now have full transparency and a lot of options. Whereas in an analog world, you frequently don't. How could I participate in that? So launch Spiffy as a company to explore that around um, the car care service vertical. Right. Um, so it's about a $500 million, uh, billion dollar, excuse me, vertical, huge, very low net promoter scores. So we're disrupting that vertical with, um, you know, a digital kind of, you know, 2022 view of what does that service look like and how do we provide it? So that's, that's where I am so far. So I'm about eight years into this spiffy journey and yeah. Pretty unbelievable run with some incredible milestones and congratulations on that big one. I mean, 21 years plus having accomplished those various goals with the acquisition closing today. I mean, huge accomplishments that I think objectively anyone would be proud of having achieved even one of them, right? Let alone kind of all four, the entire slew of them. So congratulations. And I, I am truly excited to be having you on the podcast today in that case. Um I, I mean, I think what is really exciting about getting that chance to talk with you is because of the fact that you've had a couple of different opportunities as an entrepreneur that ended in relatively different ways in different industries. And I want to explore a couple of different dimensions of that. And it's in contrast to conversations I've had with entrepreneurs previously where, you know, uh, one of them is still running their company. His name is, his name is Rishi Nair. He works in a healthcare company, imaging company. Uh, and his goal is to, to run and lead that organization forever, right? It is his passion. It is a space he is trying to solve problems in. Whereas conversely, other entrepreneur I had on was very focused on building a company to sell. Whereas you've kind of scaled organizations, led them after the fact, sold them, IPO'd. You've kind of had the full gamut. And I guess right out of the gate, I am very curious just around the mindset as an entrepreneur going into each company or each idea. Do you have an understanding when pursuing a new opportunity as an entrepreneur, what that end state is going to be for that idea or that company right out of the gate? Yes and no. So, so, um, you know, I'm at a phase of my career where I like to go fast, right? So right. I, uh, and to do that, I need capital. So, so, um, and I've been fortunate enough to be successful and I can typically get a company, you know, somewhat far along on my own capital, but at some point it's good to share the risk with a venture capitalist and right. they bring a lot of other things in addition to capital, like sage advice and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so, but once you raise, so every company has kind of four possible outcomes, you can be zero. So that's always, you know, that <laughs> you, zero is always on the table. Um, yeah. 
a lot of businesses kind of become a lifestyle business. And when I talk to other, if you use the broad sense of entrepreneur, you know, people that run restaurants or whatever right. it is, what kind of business, most of them actually um, become a lifestyle business. And a lifestyle business means it gets to a certain scale and, and they can, you know, they just stay in that state. Um, uh, and that's fine. Uh, and then, but once you take venture capital, that one's kind of off the table. Um, right. So, so they do, you know, be successful and do nothing is off the table because right. part of that contract, the it's not a contract, but the unwritten contract is you're going to give me capital and I'm going to deliver a return to you or we'll have zero. <laughs> so, right. so we all agree on that one, but that, that one's off the, 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 just kind of keep doing it for 20 years is off the table. Yeah. So, so then that really means once you take venture capital, you're either going to fail, sell the company or do an IPO. That's right. So, so that is baked into my decision day one of starting a company. And that's the decision that, that those outcomes are somewhat limited because of the venture capital. Right. Then, so then you kind of are like, well, you don't want to fail. Right. So I, I work <laughs> to avoid that one. So, so we're all aligned on that one. And then really the MA and IPO is it's just going to work out. Like if you build a great business, um, and don't really worry about the exit. That's the best way to get an exit. Right. Uh, if you build a great business, you create scale, you create scarcity value. So, right. so you want to create a business that's one of one, right? You don't want to be the 800th chat bot or, right. you know, whatever. You don't want to be like the 10th of something. You want to be the first and the leader, or maybe you're one of three, but you don't want to be like one of 10. That's right. It's not going to be a great outcome. So, so if I can create a company that is, you know, the leader ahead of the trends, um, and then, and then where I spend a lot of time thinking is what are, what am I betting on? Like what, um, and this comes from a Jeff Bezos quote where someone said to him, you know, what did you see in 1995 that made you, you know, did you, you know, what, what, what kind of fad did you see? And he says, it's actually the opposite. I, I look for decade long trends and oh, interesting. so what's not going to change. <clears throat> and if you go read his 19, one of my favorite things, and this is super, super nerdy, but you you'll probably <laughs> get it. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is go read his old shareholder letters. And if you go yeah. read his, his 1997 shareholder letter, he basically says, we believe people want selection as they, uh, you know, explore this new thing called online shopping. And we think they're going to like fast shipping. And inexpensive shipping, yeah. and we think they're going to like low prices, and it's just kind of like it's pretty pretty good guess. <laughs> so those, those are the trends he kind of bet on for decades that have built a trillion dollar business. So so I you know if if you can build a business that has those tailwinds going for it, yeah. then it gets you into that. You could either of those outcomes is a fine outcome. And so with, with that in mind, right, this idea of looking at those trends that have been, that have demonstrated over the course of decades and have staying power for decades to come, you know, obviously with channel advisor, you kind of articulated how that netted out. Um, but when it comes to Spiffy, Spiffy, for example, and the disruption of the car service industry, particularly one that it's all as low NPS as, as like car washes and things like that, uh, I guess, what are those trends that you are seeing uh, with Spiffy that you guys are working towards addressing and, and I guess, finding success through? Yeah. And um, whenever I pitch Spiffy, both externally and internally, I always spend a fair amount of time on this because it's like the DNA of the company. There's, right. there's four trends we've built Spiffy on. And, uh, you know, I set these up eight years ago. So let's just put it in context. Yeah. So number one, and I've already hinted at it here, is 
I believe services are going to go digital. And right. by that, I mean, you know, they're going to be, you know, um, younger folk uh, like yourself. So, so millennials, Gen Z's and, and even Gen X's, they are going to want an app based or, or a desktop based, mostly a phone based experience. Right. Um, they want to pay digitally. People don't want to pay with cash and they, uh, you know, and they want uh, implied in going from an analog experience to a digital is as a consumer, you have more control, you have more selection, right. you have more options than you do in the physical world. Um, so that that's number one uh, services going digital. Number two is we decided really early on, and this comes from my, my understanding of consumer behavior from e- e-commerce is the U.S. has a a convenience-oriented consumer and a value-oriented consumer. And we decided early on at Spiffy, we wanted to cater to that convenience-oriented consumer. And that's a little, that's easy for me to say, but what it means is a couple things. Number one is we're more expensive than other options and we don't apologize about it. And we basically right. say, look, you could always go to a physical car wash and pay $12 or whatever it is, $15.20, or you will come to you and you press a you, in 15 seconds investment on your phone, that's all you need. And then we'll do the rest. And that's going to be $70 or you know, whatever it is, whatever right. you choose. Um, so as low as low as 50 and as high as 300. Um, and that's the trade-off. Um, but then also, you know, to do that, we have to build a premium brand, not luxury, but kind of I equate it to a Starbucks level yeah. of, you know, there's always a cheaper, worse option, but you kind of know what you're getting with Starbucks and it's a premium for, for a lot of folks. Uh, and then um, that causes us to have our own tech technicians and our own equipment that we can talk about. But that's, yeah. so that's number two is we focus on the convenience oriented customer, be they B2B or consumer. Number three is we believe the existing infrastructure in the analog world has a very low, um, net promoter score. And so we're, we're going to be the most customer centric by, by being digital and using modern technologies from the e-commerce world, we can deliver a 10 times better customer experience. Right. Um, we believe the existing analog brick and mortar stores in the auto care world, just like the e-commerce world are stuck in the innovators dilemma, and they're not going to be able to adapt quickly to this new world order. And then the fourth one is, uh, and, and um, so when we did the Ch- Channel Advisor IPO, uh, I treated myself to a Tesla. So I've had an EV for the last 10 years. Um, right. So I was like, like literally like one, one of four people in North Carolina that had them early days. Very so I've, cool. I've been living that lifestyle for, for 10 years. And once you have that, it's kind of like that first time you use the iPhone, you're kind of like, I don't know, I don't know what this means, but it's the future and I like it kind of thing. And then yeah. they did apps and your head exploded. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so once you have a car where, you know, it's electric and it really changes your behavior and you access it through your phone a lot of times, um, you realize it's going to really change how you interact with, with the, the world and the car. Um, right. So I call all that vehicle 2.0. So there's uh, mm. autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles. Um, and then we have changing ownership models are kind of come up because of this technological change in the vehicle. Um, and then the last one is connected cars. So when your car is kind of uh, you know, connected to the internet all the time, it also right. has some cool implications. So those, those are the things we think that create a huge opportunity for us at Spiffy and will not change over the next 10, if not 20, 30 years. Yeah. And, and all that makes so much sense. And, and for context, for any listener, I do one of my big clients uh, in my career is servicing a, a global automotive manufacturer where obviously the service aspect of their business is a really big piece of customer loyalty, customer engagement over the ownership life cycle, right? And then even as you mentioned, connected car, obviously EV is everywhere, right? The VM manufacturing um, uh, company shifting to that. 
um, to, to that technology for their vehicles. But what I'm very curious about is, you know, it is a pretty big departure going from, for example, Channel Advisor, which is an almost entirely digital uh, uh, business and kind of um, idea over to Spiffy, which, yes, digitizes the experience around something that to that point was pretty, uh, you know, let's say physical, call it uh, for, in, for contrast. But, but still has a massively physical component to the experience in terms of a fleet of vehicles, in terms of, to your point, equipment, technicians. So you're suddenly dealing with a very different scaled business, which is a very different proposition, for example, to a startup like Channel Advisor or a company like Channel Advisor. So I guess I'm very curious, as you were assessing your next opportunity, you saw the white space for disruption with Spiffy. How did you plan for scaling of a business that suddenly had an entirely new component and challenge to overcome versus the organizations you had started successfully before. Yeah, and this is where having a co-founder can be helpful. So so there's a co-founder for Spiffy. His name's Carl. And he was the operator of the car washes I bought. Uh-huh. And so as we started thinking about this, I said, you know, um, we we both we were co-founders, so we both came up with the idea. And basically, there's this nice separation of of skills and what we work on. So I I do I work on the engineering side, and you know to to scale this business to the scale we're at, we've had to build a lot of software and even some hardware, which has kind of been a stress for me. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, marketing, finance, all that is on my plate. Uh, Carl, my co-founder, he works on the sales part and then operations. We have a really big operations component here. Now, fortunately, uh, you know, I'm a nerd that went to school to study engineering. Carl is a uh, Georgetown football player that went to the army. So is big, tall and good at yelling at people and making sure the trains operate on time and all that. So, um, so that's, that's his, his part of the wheelhouse. And, um, you know, the, another Amazonism is if you, you kind of start at the perfect customer experience and work backwards, right. I couldn't get to a place where we wouldn't have, we wouldn't be able to do the service. Um, and a lot of companies that have tried what we're doing, they, they gravitate towards that 1099 model, which is certainly easier, but it results in such a bad customer experience. They don't make it out of that, that, I call it the death box. <laughs> they right. call it the 1099 death trap. Um, so, so we decided to, you know, if we really want to deliver on the brand promise to be consistent and, you know, across our, our, our Holy grail, our BHAG is we want to do every car service everywhere. Um, and, and, you know, and, and so to deliver on that, it's going to take people and, and equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I think the thing that helped me get my arms around it also is having studied Amazon for 20 years, you know, right. some point Amazon had to build, you know, 500 warehouses. <laughs> right. And, exactly. And, and to deliver on their brand promise of fast, you know, f- un, you know, fast shipping, there was no infrastructure. They had to build it. And, and that's kind of what we're doing. Very cool. And so I guess from like my question on this is because there are so many people out there who are sitting at their desk at home working maybe even good or very good, you know, corporate jobs, let's say, for example, but they have an idea, right? They've flirted with the idea of maybe starting a company, starting a startup. But for example, maybe that ideal or perfect customer experience that they envision has a massive component that their skill set simply doesn't overlap with, right? But if they don't have that co-founder that has that really complementary separation of skills that you articulated with yourself and Carl. Do you have any advice potentially around uh, how do you 
secure that co-founder? How do you develop a relationship with somebody who has that skill set that you can trust enough to go into business or into a startup idea like this with? Yeah. Yeah. And a framework I like, um, the guy that does the Dilbert cartoon, Scott Adams, he has this book (laughs) called uh, How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big. And in there, he introduces this concept of a skill stack. And, you know, it's a good self-aware exercise to think, what is your skill set stack, right? You know, so as an engineer, I'm good at problem solving and analysis and coding. But, you know, when I came out of school, I had no idea how to sell or interpersonal skills, right? We don't get trained that or write. We don't get trained, you know, we don't get taught any of that stuff in engineering school. (laughs) Um, So, but I can solve like, you know, really hard algebra equations. Uh, (laughs) So... So, you know, uh, to answer your question, if you if you are a potential founder and you think, here's the problem I'm going to solve, what's it going to take to solve that? That's the the skills needed. And then where are you? And then you got to figure out how to close that gap, right? And so a co-founder is, is helpful for that. But also investors, like we're doing franchising now. I know nothing about that. Um, and right. we found an investor that, that has a lot of experience with that and ah. can kind of bring that skill or that knowledge to the table. But finding a co-founder is, is really is kind of tricky. Um, you know, there's no kind of match.com for co-founders. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, usually the way they connect um, is uh, inherently local and, and kind of, you know, going to, uh, I see a lot of them connect um, in school or um, at a job, you know, so they'll be right. like, you know, I'm at big company X and so is Sally and she's got sales talent and and I'm going to convince her to come with me and and I'm going to be the engineer and she's going to be the salesperson. So, right. so I see a lot of that or through social circles. Um, so Carl and I actually knew each other through um, social, our, our wives are second cousins or something like that. So right. we had met through, through our wives getting together. So uh, that was how I met my co-founder there. Uh, my co-founders at my other businesses, we went to school together. So, so Very cool. that was the connection. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, so I mean, it, obviously that existing relationship and level of trust, and then obviously overlapping passion for the idea and then complementary skill set really all does come together. But I think an interesting tidbit there is the idea of investors, right? Particularly once your idea has matured to a certain or startup has matured to a certain state and, and being able to secure investors that continue to complement the skill set stack, that that to me is a critical takeaway from from that for sure. Now, uh, in terms of, again, the, the pivot away from something like a channel advisor into the world of Spiffy and, and automotive care, uh, I, I have to ask because for, for me personally, uh, for something that would require the amount of effort, the amount of commitment and, and energy like a startup, um, I have to have a, pa- a a passion for what the pro- for the space, the industry, or the problems that we're trying to solve. And so, I guess I'm curious to understand where did your passion lie? Was it in the opportunity? Was it in the problem that you were solving? Was it in the industry? Was it in automotive? And and is that a critical thing for you with the startups that you have stood up and and successfully scaled? Yeah, it's none of the above. So, uh, oh, good wow. guesses. But uh, my my passion is in building. So I love taking an idea that's just like literally a napkin thing and, and, you know, pulling the thread on that and seeing what, what we can build and how big it can be. Um, right. you know, so just to give you an idea where we just crossed over 60 million revenue. Um, wow. we have 550 technicians, 280 vans, and we're in 27 markets. So, but it all started with this kind of idea. I, I said to you, like, I wonder what it would be like to have an app where people could request car care. Um, and this is kind of where we are. So, so I, you know, that, that journey, that's the fun. That's what I have passion about is, is under figuring that journey out. Um, and then along the way, you know, um, 
building a team is fun. We're, you know, yeah, you know, a startup is unlike family. You can't choose your family, but you can pick, um, as an entrepreneur, you can pick who you get to work with. So that's a yeah. lot of fun. So you know, at a big <laughs> company, you don't get to do that, right? You got to yeah. put up with, you know, there's always the underperformers and the, you know, the, 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 the cliche types of people, you know, again, going back to a Dilbert cartoon that you yeah. have to kind of deal with, um, here in a startup, we, we can pick who we want to work with and that's fun to build the team, um, and to build the office environment and spend a lot of time being purposeful about the culture of the company and those kinds of things. So I, I get a lot of passion about that. Um, that being said, I am a car guy, you know, I would never, you know, I have no passion for healthcare, for example, um, right. just doesn't interest me. So I, there, there has to be a, a passion there as well. Um, but I'm not a mechanic by any means. I'm not right. a, you know, I like, I like the car I drive. I like driving cars, but I don't like working on cars, but this space is really fun because, um, it is, uh, challenging. It's big. And, you know, the addressable market here is basically everyone, every company in business with a car. So it's right. way bigger than anything I've taken a swing at. So that's fun. Um, and yeah, so it, it it's, uh, you know, the, but the, if I really boil it down, the reason I keep doing this is I am addicted to that, that thrill from building something out of nothing. Yeah. It's very interesting. And even as, as you kind of articulate like that, you are a car guy. And the reason I, I brought the question up is like, even with, uh, with, uh, earlier startups, you mentioned like the, the tangential kind of problem solving for, uh, auction sites, right. And an auction search engine based on your interest in star Wars and your, your search for collectibles. Right. And you have this interesting solving of a problem that is tangentially connected to a passion area. And then in this case, right? You have the overlap of your passion for building simply inter kind of integrating with a like for cars and then obviously building teams, you know, super important. Now in regards to building teams, building culture to have done it this many times, uh, is there a culture that you default to, or has it been highly specific and specialized to the industry, to the space, to the startup, uh, and the context that comes with it? Yeah. Um, it's the hardest part to get right. Um, yeah. And you know, it's the one thing there's not a lot of book on books on either. Like it's easy. There's a lot of books on startup culture, but like, so channel advisor has over 800 people and, you know, as it, as it developed, you know, there's not a lot of people you can, you know, you can talk to about it and the culture gets kind of baked in there. Um, Probably, again, the most interesting thing is there are some books. So there's some books around how Amazon is set up. Amazon has the most, unusual culture and how they're set up. They have this whole small team approach versus a kind of a unified, unified approach. Um, mm -hmm. There's some other things around, you know, um, how to set up a company. Like uh, there's stuff way out on the edges. Like Zappos tried this thing called Holacracy, which is kind of, kind of the inmates running the asylum kind of thing. Right. <laughs> uh, so I, I read a lot of that uh, and I know what not to do. Um, you know, what you don't want to do is be like, I'm also, uh, you know, I digest a lot of pop culture. You don't want to be like office space, you know, like, yeah, what would, what would you say you do here kind of thing or, right. or have like a something super cheesy, like flair, uh, all, all those things are, are, you know, it's really, so then when you, when you try to navigate that, it's hard to come up with something that's not super cheesy. Right. Probably the best thing I've found, um, is, um, and tried to model after is Amazon has these management principles and what's good about them is they're pretty meaty. So, so I could give them to you. And let's say you're a new manager at Amazon and 
it gives you this really nice framework for moving forward versus like, you know, a lot of times people will say our value statement is we're creating a better world and our customers are awesome and we treat each other nicely and right. uh, we try to make a profit. Yeah. So usually they have a lot of those sprinkling in there, but that doesn't, that doesn't really help. Right. <laughs> so, right. so, you know, so, so if you have to decide in your day job, you know, do I, you know, is it more important to make the customer happy or for us to make a profit? Like help, you know, and you know, where does, where do I draw the line? Well, these Amazon management principles, they actually are, are very precise in that. And they, they have a, a why, a how and case studies, and then a, a, a negative example as well. Um, so it's, it's really, really helpful to, to do, but but because of that, you know, you're kind of committed to a 20 to 30 page document to really kind of do it. It's hard to, I don't think you can capture it in a poster or a, a soundbite. Yeah, that's really interesting because like, even as you describe those management principles, that's less about instilling, for example, culture, let's say, um, which is obviously a loaded term and, and maybe a little ambiguous even, but it, it does instill a decisioning matrix for, for people to make decisions consistently, right? Like for example, if the priority is customer satisfaction and that's the way that we go up to a point within these guardrails, right? Then that at the very least, everyone is operating within that framework and that gives a very consistent kind of mindset around decisioning. And that makes a lot of sense. And that feels like a very powerful tool. But I have maybe observed uh, across, you know, various clients that I've serviced in the past, you know, 20 plus of them in my own organization and, and seeing different, you know, C-level leaders talk about culture and talk about, let's say, core values or principles. Sometimes they land differently from one organization to another. Sometimes they feel authentic and genuine, like that person that's articulating them lives and breathes them. Sometimes they feel like, somebody decided that that's probably what would look best on a page and have the best, you know, mo most positive publicity reaction, let's say. And I guess in your opinion, right, is it simply critical that they have to be genuine and have to be believed in by the people at, kind of at the top and then that has a trickle down effect uh, in an organization? And, and if they're not genuine, is it just setting up for failure? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a softball one, but yeah, if you've, you know, you have to kind of lead by example. Um, one of my favorite books is good to great. And they talk about, you know, the egoless leader and big, hairy, audacious goals and the hedgehog, yeah. all, all that good stuff that comes out of that book. Um, but the one, you know, and then I've interacted with a lot of, you know, I've been in this, I've been fortunate enough to interact with the CEO of, um, you know, senior leaders at Amazon, um, senior leaders at Google and eBay and, and having seen all these kind of like, you know, top tier companies, um, you know, you go meet an SVP at Amazon and they'll go, they'll go work at the fulfillment center during the holidays. And huh. you know, they, so, so, so they're, they're humble enough that they're like, not, you know, I, I sit in the corner office in this plush carpet. I don't, I don't do that, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. but then, you know, they also know the business top down. Then you go visit some of the previous CEOs of eBay and they're like, they can't answer a question about the business because they're so, you know, in their view, they, they're, what they do is so narrow, you know, talk to wall street and manage their team. They can't answer a question about shipping or, you know, they've never sold or bought on eBay. And it's like, I, you kind of like her, you're sitting there like, how, you know, how is this going to work out? And, and ultimately it's been interesting to watch that over 20 or 30 years where, right. you know, Amazon has just outperformed a lot of these other players because they have that mindset of, you know, living the culture and rolling up your sleeves and, and getting into the details. 
Interesting. And, and I think that makes total sense. And I guess, you know, as you described Amazon or eBay, because they're long past the, the times of being a startup, right, or anything like that. These are pillars of our kind of commerce and, and um, economy today. But I, I guess I'm curious, over the course of your career, as you've gone through your various startups, has there been ever a time where you looked at a larger organization, you know, an established industry uh, company or anything like that? And thought about making a shift away from serial entrepreneurialism and moving into like executive or senior leadership at an organization like that? Like, or, or has it has it never even been a thought that crossed your mind? It hasn't been a thought. I I have a lot of respect for, you know, um, so like you, I've I get to work with at Channelvisor, I worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, but then also entrepreneurs. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the early days, I can remember meeting the team at Nike that was formed to yeah. figure out going direct to consumer. And you know, I have a lot of respect for those people because they have it like 10 times harder than an entrepreneur because they've got to convince this massive, they're this little insurgency inside of this massive corporation. (laughs) And, you know, the corporate antibodies like kick in. Uh, One of my favorite books is uh, Innovator's Dilemma. And, you know, so they have to, not only do they have to figure it out, but they have to, they have to be so persuasive that they have to change this massive company that's got all this, you know, baked in old way of doing things to do something new. Um, so I, I enjoy working with those people, but I don't think I have the patience to, I couldn't do it myself. Uh, having seen kind of how hard that is. So, so a lot of my friends in the e-commerce world have, have, you know, kind of done that Don Quixote route. Um, yeah. And it, ultimately it worked out, but you know, it was a long, it was like a 20 year arc of time before, you know, it worked out to the point where it was obvious that what they were doing was the future. Yeah, yeah. And even as you say that having respect for, for example, because I similarly have had experiences where, you know, you're dealing with a product owner or manager or capability leader or whatever channel lead inside of a large organization, right? And to your point, they have all these kind of hurdles, these approvals that they need to secure to make and even these small changes that, um, you know, if done more quickly could drive so much more impact and change. And there's having respect for that. I I totally agree with um, having observed it in a number of organizations uh, it, it certainly would be tough. And, it, and I think for my own career, I have experienced the cultures of numerous organizations in a similar way. But at any point, you know, as a consultant, right, the ability to go in, solve a problem, build the path forwards, step out, and then go and do that again somewhere else has, you know, maybe not the same level of ownership as, for example, as an entrepreneur building a company that, that you know, holistically they're driving towards a certain goal has a similar flavor, right, that you're constantly solving these different problems. Um, yeah, and I think that makes total sense. Uh, and and you know, from here, I'd love to to think about just as you've gone along your your journey. Have there ever been um, problems, for example, that have been uh, parallel or adjacent to the ones that you were solving, or maybe in an industry adjacent to the one that you are currently playing in that that you haven't had a chance to explore and solve for that you think you might still look to solve in the future? Like, is there any, any problem that has passed you by that you haven't built an organization around as of yet? Well, uh, as an entrepreneur and, you know, kind of a, um, a self-proclaimed geek slash nerd, I'm, I'm always kind of keeping an eye on the next big thing. And, yeah. you know, but I, I haven't, I get so into what I'm doing. I always just think of how could I apply that technology to it? So I, I love, you know, so 3d printing is really interesting to me. Drones, the metaverse, all that stuff's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and even, and I know it's hard to talk about this, 
these days, but crypto and the blockchain yeah. <laughs> and all that. Um, I, I love learning about new things. So I'm always looking at those things, but I really don't have a desire to start a company in those areas per se. But it's interesting to think, you know, could we leverage that here? Um, and for example, um, I followed the 3D printing trend for a long time and we ended up having the opportunity to create a device. So we have a whole, um, we actually have a whole facility now that does uh, manufacturing of devices. Um, and Very cool. uh, yeah, so we, we invented this thing called a smart tumbler that deodorizes your car um, at the request of a customer. And and, um, you know, we built all the prototypes up using 3D printers. So, so my, my hobby knowledge actually came in handy um, and, and we were able to leverage that in the business, for example. Um, so uh, I don't know if that answers your question. You know, the, but then there's stuff. So that's stuff that's like really far out from what we're doing. But yeah. the stuff in our orbit will eventually get to, you know. So right, right. now we do oil change and car washing. Um, and, you know, we're, we've added tires. So that's an area. Ultimately, we want to be able to do everything mobile for your car. And we, we'll have to probably develop some technologies to get there. Um, but yeah, there's there's nothing that's passed us by. We, we've decided not to do a lot of stuff. So, for example, in the early days, we had a lot of our fleet customers ask if we could do fueling. And, oh, and even consumers, um, so on-demand fueling. Right. And we looked at that, and it didn't make sense for from through like three different lenses. So it's hard to make the business model work. You're taking a low-margin thing and adding a high-margin, you know, high a, a labor to a low-margin thing. So we could never get it to model out. Um, and then regulatory, we started asking some some fire chiefs in town. You know, hey, we're going to take a, a truck full of gasoline and drive it into the <laughs> yeah. parking lot at Cisco and fill cars. They're like, oh heck, no, you're not going to do that. So we're kind of like, you know, let, that one's not for us. So so we've we've made conscious decisions not to do stuff. And you know, we've also um, part of entrepreneurship is failing a lot. So so right. you know, we you know uh, by doing you know part of our culture and what we do every day is a lot of testing. And because we're testing all the time, we're failing, you know, like 80% of the stuff we do fails. Right. <laughs> and, you know, which can be daunting, but that 20% that works, that that really is awesome and sticks. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we don't do because we've tried and failed. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think that's really interesting. The idea of continuing to, to, to stay ahead of and look at these various trends and trying to ideate how they might play with the with the organization that you're currently leading but not necessarily having the desire to chase them full-fledged in, in, you know in a new venture which makes you know I think makes total sense but um, you, you touched on the manufacturing piece the rapid kind of prototyping with 3d printing you know, it's the second time in, in a very short period of time I'm talking about that on this podcast uh, but in a very different context the other conversation was with the the founder of a uh, watch manufacturing company, right? A boutique watch manufacturer and obviously 3D printing, rapid prototyping helped their design process. But I want to pivot to, for example, manufacturing and the products that you have created with Spiffy, you know, because that is again, an entirely, excuse me, <coughs> Excuse me. That is again an entirely different pillar or aspect of this of this business, right? You have obviously the service, you have the fleet, you have the technician management, digital. <coughs> Excuse me, damn it. Uh, you have this. <coughs> That's why I don't record the videos. So that way we can continue going nice and smooth uh, in post. You have the the technician, the service aspect of it, the fleet, the digital platforms and technologies around it. But now you're also producing products, which is like a totally different space. Maybe talk a little bit about when and how the decision made was made to actually vertically integrate and make your own products versus outsourcing, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the idea for this product, um, it came from a customer. So in this post-COVID world, what's happened is consumers have gotten really, really... Um, 
you know, uh, specific about odors. So, so they're very concerned about odors. Uh, I have seasonal allergies and I don't like, I don't smoke, uh, and I don't like, you know, I prefer not to be around smokers if I can avoid it. And, uh, you know, so what, what you find in today's vehicles is a lot of people smoke, uh, both, uh, cigarette tobacco, cannabis being legalized has uh, made it that way. Um, and then vaping. So I don't want to rent a car, go to Denver, and, you know, I'm in a suit to visit a customer <laughs> and I leave and my eyes are watery because of the smell of the cannabis and I smell like pot. That's that's a doomsday scenario for me. I'm not going to I'm going to smell. I'm going to open that door and I'm going to say, I don't want this car. Yeah. Well, at the rental car, you know, that hurts their net promoter scores. So ah. so fleets um, and I'm just using rental cars. Every fleet has a problem with this. There's a, an acute odor problem. So what happened is during covid, we used this process. Uh, I, I won't go into the specifics uh, uh, to deodorize to disinfect cars, but it ends up deodorizing deodorizing them as well. So our, our large customer came to us and said, we've noticed in our data that when you guys do this, this uh, treatment that we don't get any odor complaints. Um, can you create a product that does that safely, consistently, and at a certain price point? So that's that was the the, the customer gave us that, that job um, to, to figure out. Um, and then we it was, uh, we chewed away at it and this is where having 3d printers came in handy because we could, you know, prototype it and be like, well, that doesn't work. That works. Um, and where we ended up is actually have one, uh, people won't be able to see it, but but you will. So, so so we call it a smart tumbler. So, uh, imagine, um, you know, so it's got a cup that screws on and it's got a lid and then the lid, we have a bunch of electronics. Um, and this is, this is 3d printed. This one's injection molding now, but it's 3d printed. So what we do is we have a tablet that has the chemical and it goes in this little slot. There's a slot in the lid. And then on top of the lid is a button. So you, you fill the, you fill the container with water, you put the tablet in there and you put it in your cup holder and you run the vehicle with the air conditioner on. And then you hold this button down for, it's not going to start because uh, for, for five seconds and it starts a timer and there's a light ring that gives you a visual indicator of where the product is in the process. So, um, so with this, you can disinfect and deodorize. It's mostly deodorize uh, a car in under 15 minutes um, and get rid of all the tobacco smells and those types of things that are, are quite unpleasant. So, um, so we worked with a customer and we, 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 you know, being able to 3d print, we were able to get them prototypes and they tried it and they're like, well, you know, we really wish, uh, you know, uh, so for example, the early version, um, it didn't have this check that there was a tablet in there and now right. it flashes red if there's no tablet. Um, Very cool. and then, uh, so it has all these like little programming things in there. Um, yeah, so that, that's the device. And so this is where we had to go to, uh, you know, I was fortunate our CTO, uh, he has a hobby where he's a maker. So he had a lot of these Andrino chips and all this raspberry pie yeah. jazz. I'm a software guy. He's got a hardware kind of a area. Um, so, so because of that, we were able to build this for our, our customer. And, um, later today, we're going to have a truckload of, uh, like 15,000 of these arriving. So, That's so very it's been, cool. it's, uh, it's doing really well. So we, we did, we did uh, plastic 3d printing and then SLS 3d printing, which was more reliable and got us through prototype. And then now we have injection molding. That's very cool. And, and I have to wonder because th- I, I, I almost saw the satisfaction in your eyes as you demonstrated with the product, the physical product, and especially as a collector of things, do you find a different level of satisfaction with having scaled Spiffy to what it has become with the physical aspect of the fleet, with the, the products that you've made, the, 
And I, and I guess that tangible concreteness versus creating and solutioning and solving problems in the digital world, is there for you, is there a different level of satisfaction at all between the two? This is my first product, so it is kind of fun to have be able to touch it, right? But yeah, you know, if we if we were demoing Channel Advisor, I would be equally excited, you know, because every demo has kind of an aha moment. So, like in, right. in Channel Advisor, you know, we can say, "All right, uh, Nike, you've got fifty thousand SKUs, and if you were going to manually sell these on eBay, Amazon, and Alibaba, it would do this." And like, here's six button presses to do that. Like, you know, it's always fun to do those demos in the software world and watch people the aha moment kind of happen. Um, so, but I, you know, it has been fun to do to the device. It's been been kind of a new thing for me. Yeah, it's very cool. And and maybe one final question, just out of curiosity, because you've mentioned it once or twice now in the conversation that a specific customer need has paved the way to a new offering or a new product in this case. And I guess. How many times have you seen that happen in Spiffy? And is is given the nature of the business around and industry around Spiffy, is that um, similar or different maybe to something like Channel Advisor, where like a single customer can can have a significant impact on the service offering that you end up developing? Yeah, I'm a you know I'm, I'm kind of a I'll give you a Star Wars quote. I'm a, I'm a simple man figuring his way through the galaxy, right? And, <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, what I have found is all of my ideas have come from customers and talking to them. And cool. I encourage other entrepreneurs. Now, now what happens is entrepreneurs read books and they'll read, they'll read like, um, there's this famous Henry Ford quote that basically says, you know, uh, if I'd asked people what they wanted, I would have built a faster horse. And then Steve Jobs <laughs> quotes this all the time. So there, there's kind of a Steve Jobs, Henry Ford connection there. And I get that. And maybe that's why I'm not building, you know, Facebook or something like, or Apple. Yeah. But, you know, for me, the simple entrepreneur, I don't have an Ivy League education. My my playbook is get some customers, listen to them and do more of what they want and solve more of their pain. And, uh, you know, maybe I haven't had that that trillion dollar thing, but that's what works for me and has been my path to, to kind of building a successful set of businesses. Yeah, and I would say an objectively successful path. And I think that's a really beautiful sentiment and and, and simple, elegant in its articulation. And uh, also, I think a wonderful kind of learning and tidbit to kind of leave the conversation off on. Scott, again, congratulations on an unbelievable milestone and a, an unbelievable journey. Thank you again for, for your time today on the podcast. And I look forward to maybe having you on again in the future, but this has been fantastic. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks, Peter. I really enjoyed it. 